Hey, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians this week. Big surprise. We finished 1 Thessalonians last week. We're going to pick it up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 this week. So, um, when I was taking seminary classes, my favorite classes were by far my church history classes, right? Some of us have taken church history classes. Some of us are history buffs. And really enjoy talking about this sort of thing. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy about studying church history is you can see trends throughout the existence of the church. And you can see what has worked in growing the church, what has worked in you know, stifling the growth of the church. What kinds of things have affected the church in various ways. And you can see how different people living out their lives and making Different decisions have uh, drastically affected the history of what we would call Christianity, right? How, how very different right now looks based on the way different events have taken place throughout the past. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today because, because looking at how the church grew most effectively in the past might key us in a little bit to what is helping or would help the church grow a bit more effectively in the present. Uh, and I think that it's a really timely message for us, especially on a week when all sorts of stuff is going on in the world. Right? So we were talking about this right before. This has been a crazy week. You were calling, Andy was calling this right before. This is a, like a critical week in the history of our lives, our country, and in the church. Um, but when you think back... A, and, and it hasn't necessarily made the church look great, depending on how the church reacts to the things that are going on. So the church might be feeling a little bit of pushback for believing the things that we believe. But pushback is not necessarily a bad thing. When, when the church, in the past, when the church has been persecuted the most, or suffered the most, that has been when the church has seen the most exponential growth in its history. I'll give you a couple of examples. We studied Acts a couple of years ago. And right after the Holy Spirit comes down, there's this huge explosion of evangelism at Pentecost. But really, everybody that's joining the church, being added to the body of believers, ends up just kind of forming a church right there. Like they're all around each other. They're all nice and safe. They're all kind of contained. They're all kind of figuring out life, all of these sorts of things. They're very comfortable to just kind of Stay right there. Yes, they're saved. They're all getting to know Jesus better. They're all having their lives transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's all fantastic. But the mission that Jesus left the church with when he, when he left was take this to the nations. Don't just sit still. You're supposed to go places. Once the Holy Spirit comes, go out and make disciples of everyone. So the church was kind of sitting in Jerusalem. Very content to just kind of continue there until a guy named Saul, who happens to be the guy who would eventually write the book we're studying. It said, and it says in Acts, he was persecuting the church. And, and everyone in the church knew about this. And because of the great persecution that he was encouraging, and also because of the fact that, that Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church, was killed for his faith. Everybody got terrified of the persecution and started scattering. They started running. But as they were running, what were they talking about? 
They were talking about Jesus. They were, they were spreading the gospel. As they were being chased from one city to the other, it was forcing the gospel to be taken from just one city to being taken around the world. They couldn't sit still because if they sat still, they might be killed. So they kept moving, but they didn't stop talking about Jesus. And it says that, that as Paul was persecuting the church, the church was being spread throughout the whole region because of the persecution that they were facing. Um, there was an early church father named Tertullian who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Like, like you kill us, but all that we do is start spreading the gospel all the more, right? When you think of, when you think of um, a flower or a plant dying, right? I'm going to use an example that's very near and dear to my community group, okay? When a dandelion dies... When a dandelion dies, the yellow flower turns into this little puffball of like 30, 40, 50 seeds. And it's those seeds that get scattered around and plant what seem like millions of dandelions. If you have them in your yard, they're hard to get rid of. But it takes that plant dying to spread itself further around. And, and that's what Tertullian was talking about. He was saying... Persecuting the church, the, the blood of the martyrs. If you kill us, all that does is it spreads the gospel that much more rapidly. You think you're trying to put an end to this thing, but the persecution that we're facing is only proving to take the gospel further and undo what you're trying to do. So, so, so the church starts, the church is persecuted, the church is spread throughout the whole well, we'll call it the whole world. It's spread, a, it's spread a long way. Because of this persecution, they keep having to move. A couple hundred years later, there's, an, there's a Roman emperor called Constantine who thinks, you know what? We're going to put an end to this persecution. We're going to say that it's illegal to persecute the church. We're going to make the church, the, we're going to make Christianity like the official religion that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna add to our religions, basically. So he stops persecuting the church. It just so happens that right around then we get to this period in history that we call the Dark Ages now. Where, where the church got really stagnant, the church got, got really safe because it was kind of this state-run entity and was no longer effectively taking the gospel and was no longer effectively preaching Christ in the way that he intended. They, they, got, they got stagnant, they got still because they weren't being forced to move. And one of the things that Paul's going to remind the church when he opens up 2 Thessalonians, is that you're going to suffer as being the church. But as your suffering takes place, it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing for you because I'm going to use that to spread the gospel. And that's because that's the case that we see every time there's persecution in the church. One of the fastest, I think maybe the fastest growing church in the world right now is the church in China. I think that's true. It's, it's definitely up there. And it's, very discouraged to be a Christian in China. Here in America, it's like, you can be whatever you want to be. Right? Just, just, just be what you want. Just, just don't, don't force it on me. That's kind, of, that's kind of the mantra. Like, we're okay with Christianity. Or, or in the South, it's like, everybody's a Christian. They'll, everybody will tell you they're a Christian because that's kind of the, the Deep South, you know, sponsored church is Christian church. But but what are we doing? We're too safe. It's easy it's too easy to just show up at church, check the box and go home and that be it. 
We're not being forced into action. There's, there's, no, there's no real urgency behind what we're doing because it's too safe to be us. And Paul's going to say today as we read that it's okay if you're kind of put to the fire a little bit. Because that fire is what's going to kind of spur you on, push you forward, push the gospel further. So let's go ahead and read. We're going to do all of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 today. It's only 12 verses. So let's just go ahead and read this, get an idea for what he's talking about, and then we'll kind of go from there. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the same three who sent the letter to the Thessalonians before. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are being afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting <laughs> vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this kind of picks up. It seems like this picks up right where Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians left off probably wasn't written too long after. In fact, a couple of the things that Paul starts by saying he's thankful for about them are things that he said in 1 Thessalonians that he was praying would happen in their lives. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul prayed that their faith and love for one another would grow. And right here he's saying, we are so thankful to see that our prayers are being answered, that these things are, are coming to life within the body of believers in Thessalonica. Right. You guys are starting to see this happen. I want you guys to love each other. So I prayed that this would happen and I'm seeing it. And now not only is Paul getting to testify that the church in Thessalonica is doing well, but he's also getting to testify that God is being faithful to answer the prayers that he's been asking. So they're kind of a a a doubly exciting thing that he gets to testify about where he is ministering currently. So he's thankful that, that, that God is proving himself again to be faithful. And then he commends them for their, for their growing faith. Right, they're, they're continuing to grow even though they're facing adversity. They're not stopping. And, and it, because as it turns out, and we talked about this just a few seconds ago when we were talking about church history. Adversity doesn't hinder the growth of the church. It actually promotes it. 
So, so when we face some sort of adversity, that is what's going to propel us even further forward as the church. And, and that seems that seems like it would be the opposite. It seems like if you face adversity, it would hold you back. But that's not the case. Because, because I mean, you have to think about what our faith is rooted in. Our faith is grounded um, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So, so he who faced the greatest adversity, right? Like, like we, we believe in a guy whose ministry was to come here, face adversity even to the point that he's killed. Right? That's the example that we follow. We follow a guy who was killed for what he was doing. And basically what Paul is saying is, just like him, we face adversity, but that only propels us even further. So, so and I say this again, on a week when so many crazy things, in the last couple of weeks, so many crazy things have happened. Even the one, So you had the Supreme Court ruling this last week uh, on gay marriage. That seems like a big loss for us, right? Because now it's like, what leg does, I mean, I can't, we were, dad or somebody was emailing around. We've been getting all these emails. How should the church legally react? Like how should, how should the church behave in light of these legal rulings so that the churches can't get sued? Like these are the sorts of emails that pastors are going to start getting now. Like what can you say and not say? What can you do and not do in light of these sort of court rulings? Like this is the direction that the, 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 the country in which you live is going. How should you behave so that, so that something bad doesn't happen to your church? And these are the sorts of things that the church is now going to have to face. And... It seems like this is a loss for us, right? It seems like this is a thing where we're going to say the church has now taken a giant step back because there's less that we can do. We've lost this battle, but this wasn't the battle that we were fighting. We know that we live in an immoral world. We know that we live in a world that's going to chase after all sorts of sinful things. Gay marriage is not the battle that we're fighting. We're fighting... For Jesus, We're fighting to say that Jesus is the solution. And once you have Jesus, once you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, he's the one who changes you. He's the one who takes away whatever sin it is that you're struggling. It might not be homosexuality. It might be pornography. It might not be pornography. It might be something else. We all struggle with some sort of sin. And we're all incapable of defeating that sin on our own. The guys have been meeting and going through a book called Finally Free, and it is help, and it is direct advice on how to put sin to death in your life. Its focus is on pornography, but it could be read through the lens of whatever sin it is that you struggle with and putting that sin to death. But, but the big conclusion, it seems like every chapter is, in the end, there are things that you can do, but ultimately, you just need to beg God to do something miraculous in your life. That's really what it comes down to. So even on a week when it seems like, like morality has taken a hit, this is just one more opportunity for us to, stay, to, to not lose the narrative that the church is there to love people and show them Jesus. It would be very easy for the church to be viewed this week as, we're going to grab our torches and pitchforks and we're going to say, we hate the government, we hate what they're doing, and we hate this, and we don't like this. And what narrative is that for the church to be championing? 
That's, that's, not the, that's not the team that we are. That's not the side that we are. We're, we're, we're pro-Jesus. We're not, we're not anti-people. And, and I'm worried, maybe not in this church, but it could be in this church. I'm worried that the church is going to lose the moral high ground to the immoral because of the way that we could potentially react to the decisions that society around us is making. Morality seeing pushback, we ought to use that as a means to propel us forward, not as a means to sink back and say, well, we have to, first we have to fight against this immorality because we can't overcome immorality. We can't overcome immorality in ourselves, much less in the world. We need Jesus. The world just needs Jesus. This ought to inspire us all the more to just take Jesus and say, Know him. Know the goodness that is Christ. Be satisfied in him, and he will do the work of taking sin away. Because that's what Paul was praying for them, that, that, that they would love one another and that their faith would increase. And, that's, and he's seeing that sort of thing take place amidst adversity. There is adversity. We're going to face more and more adversity. It doesn't stop at a couple of political rulings or a new bill getting passed or what. That is not the end of adversity. Ask people who don't live in America what adversity looks like, and you get a very different picture. We are not facing adverse conditions. But maybe we ought to start living like we are. Maybe we ought to start, start understanding that there is a sense of urgency in the world, that we need to be taking this gospel much more aggressively wherever it is that we go, even if it's just to, to class or to work. So let's talk about how, how God relates to the suffering that they were doing, that they were going through. We'll read verses 5 through 10 again. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. So this society that he's writing to was very superstitious. I mean we're still superstitious today, but they were superstitious. <laughs> And if you were suffering, then it's very easy to assume that you have done something wrong and God is judging you for your, and that is why you are suffering. I mean, think back, I mean, this was long before, but think like the book of Job, right? Every bad thing happens to Job. And all of his friends come around and say, you got to, honestly, you got to figure out what sin you committed. Because obviously you've done something wrong and that's why God is making you go through all of these things. But what we find out is that, that God allows us to suffer for his own purposes, not necessarily because of some sin, because that's what he's saying here. Uh, you're, you're, you're suffering right now so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That's, a, that's an interesting idea that, that, that I didn't fully understand. I still don't fully understand. But like this idea of because we suffer, it proves that we are worthy 
of, of heaven? What, what, is, what is he saying there? So, so really, who is the, is the suffering happening to the people who are sinful? Or is the suffering happening to the people being afflicted on them by people who are sinful? I guess is the question. Those are the two ways that you can look at suffering. Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read this several weeks back. Paul instructed them to live worthy lives. Worthy lives are going to look more and more like Christ. And like we talked about before, Christ also suffered for living the life that he suffered, for living the life that he lived. So it makes sense to say that we who are being like Christ will also suffer like Christ. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul even says, it's like, you ought to rejoice in the fact that we get to share in Christ's sufferings. We get to be like Christ. Some of you will get to die like Christ got to die, like for the glory of God. And you ought to, you ought to be excited that, that God would consider you worthy of that sort of life. That he thinks, you because you think back to Job. Why did Job have to suffer through all those things? Because Satan was wanting to prove that someone didn't believe in God the way God thought. And God said, no, no, no. This guy has faith. And he's going to prove it because I'm going to let you do this to him. And he's going to show you that he has the faith that I was talking about. So, so when God allows his church to suffer, he's doing it so that he can prove that, see, look, these are my people. They do believe me. They are going to follow me. Look at what they're doing in the face of adversity. So suffering is not something that we should say, man, God must be mad at me. But, man, I am suffering because God thinks that I am worthy of this, because God thinks that I can handle this, because God is going to do something through me because of this. Maybe it's just he's going to give you the testimony to say, I was able to endure this. Maybe it's he's going to give you an opportunity to speak about Christ because of what it is that you're suffering. When I was reading that, live a life worthy of what's been done. Because, I mean, if you think about it, we're living a life worthy of the sacrifice of Christ, which, I mean, let's be honest, we're not going to live a life worthy of that. We don't deserve that. That was an act of grace. I kept thinking back to like the movie Saving Private Ryan. It's okay. It's been long enough. I can talk about the end of that. There's no spoiler alert needed. If you haven't seen it by now, sorry. So Saving Private Ryan. There's this guy who's who's way beyond the lines of battle, World War II, and Tom Hanks's character and his group of guys have to go find this guy because both his brothers have died. He's the last surviving member of his family. They need to go get him out. So this whole movie, they're, they're fighting their way further and further into the battle zone to save this guy. Lots of guys die along the way. And then in the end, they find him, and I'm going to just go and ruin the end of the movie. Right as Tom Hanks' character is about to die, at the very end, having saved this kid, he grabs him and says, you earn this. You live a life that is worth what we just gave up for you. And then it flashes ahead, and he's asking his family, have I lived a good life? Have I done these sorts of... Because he was so concerned that what was done for him, that his life would reflect 
the grace that he was giving. He was given. And I think that's a, that's a, a fair comparison for us to look at. Like, we don't do something to earn the grace of God. There's nothing that we can do that will earn God's favor in our lives. But we have been given Christ for free. And as a result, we want to live a life that responds rightly to the sacrifice that he made to bring us into his family. Matt Damon's character at the end of that has desired, I want to do something with my life that reflects the enormity of what's been done for me that I didn't earn. And I think Paul is saying here to the church, just know that the things that you're going through are going forward to kind of build this life that when you get to the end, you're going to say, I've lived a life like Christ. I've lived a life worthy of what Christ has done for me. We're never fully going to be able to repay Christ for what he's done. But, but because we know what he's done for us, because we've experienced that grace, we fight as hard as we can to live a life that responds properly to that. And that's what Paul's saying. Yes, you're suffering now, but just know that this suffering is building to something. This is, this is the right, you should be living rightly even amidst the suffering so that you can, you can basically fill out your whole resume. See, look, I was given grace and this is what I was able to do with it. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain. Their worthy lives were proved by God's confidence in the faith that he gave them. Like, like God gave them faith and they ran with it. They're running with it. And Paul's saying, this is what I was praying for for you. That in the midst of difficulty you would keep going and keep growing. And that's what he's seeing. Because then he's saying, God's the one who's going to rightly judge who's actually wrong amidst the suffering. He's not, because we said, they could choose, it, it seemed, society would say, well, you must have done something wrong, that's why you're suffering. Well, we see that, that that's not the case, because they're, they're the church and God is using the suffering in their lives. And, and Paul, Paul encouraged them by saying, God knows who's actually sinful here. Don't feel like you need to prove that you're being wrongly treated. God will seek out the vengeance himself. God will take care of that. God sees that the suffering inflicted on them is not being because they're guilty, but because the people who are inflicting this on them are sinful and wicked. Their suffering is being inflicted by a guilty party, not on a guilty party. And God is going to avenge the pain that his people suffer. And it's going to repay, and he says he's going to repay in two ways. He's going to repay positively those who were wrongly treated. So the church. In the end, when Christ returns, and this is the picture that he paints. Christ returns, those who have been suffering then get the glorious presence of Jesus Christ forever and always. He's going to repay them for the suffering. Think back, okay, Job again. Job loses everything, loses family, loses house, loses land, property. Remains faithful. God gives him back everything and then some. God repays him and then more. I'm not saying just because you suffer now, if you lose something now, that God's going to give you something back right here. It's 
This isn't isn't a, if you remain faithful, God's going to give you a pool kind of story. This isn't that. This is the kind of story where if you remain faithful, in the end, you get Jesus forever. Because what's the punishment for those who did not know him, who did not believe? He's going to repay them negatively, right? They're going to be separated from the presence of Christ for eternity. And that's exactly the opposite of what his description of salvation was. Salvation was you get Jesus for eternity. Destruction is eternal separation from the presence of God. And he's saying that God is the one who knows how to judge this rightly. So you don't need to say, but I'm being treated badly. This is going wrong for me. Or, or I, don't, I don't agree with these decisions that are being made by the country. And people are just being allowed to go sin all they want now. And I don't like that. He's saying, you don't worry about that. You remain faithful to the mission that you've been given, which was to talk about Jesus, to know and love Jesus. Let your faith grow. Take Christ to the world. And let God take care of the rest of it. He's the one who can rightly judge. We don't, we don't understand why he does things the way he does now. But what we do know is that he is able to rightly discern how to dole out the judgment and the repayment at the end. So we get, we get eternity in the presence of God. And they get separation from God forever. And he says that all this is going to happen when Jesus is revealed. It was in, I think, verse 9 and 10. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the present Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. On that day. It's that same kind of phrasing that we've seen the last couple of weeks where we talked about the parousia, the, the, the arrival of Christ, thinking about that kind of in a positive sense. Or, or, or on the day of the Lord, which is the same day, but the day he comes back to, to judge those who have rejected him. But on that day, it says when Jesus is revealed. It's using the word apocalypsis, which translates revelation. Like, like right now, the world doesn't fully see Christ for who he is. Christ is actually alive right now. Christ is actually king right now. Christ is actually ruling and reigning over all of creation right now, though he is hidden from us. We don't fully get to experience Christ right now. And on that day, he's saying all will be revealed. Everybody who knows Christ will get to see Christ and love him and be with him. And everybody who doesn't know Christ on that day will see that, oh man, I missed it. I didn't get it. I didn't see him for who he truly was. So right now there's kind of this, this, this hiddenness, this veiled idea where Christ is he's actually there, he's actually alive, but we don't fully get to experience his presence and his lordship yet. But Paul's saying that day is coming when he's going to come and he's going to take care. All this suffering will go away and God will rightly judge how to deal with all of these circumstances. Let's go ahead and read these last couple of verses. So now Paul's going to pray for him. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So now Paul prays that the things that he's saying he wants to see in them, that their faith would grow, that they would, they would, they would suffer well, they would, they would move forward, that their, their love for Christ would increase. He's praying that these things would happen. Um, depending on what version of the Bible you have, um, you may have in verse uh, 11 that our God may consider you worthy. Uh, I think the NIV says, may say consider worthy. A couple of different versions may say consider worthy. Most of us are using the ESV. It says make you worthy. Um, you can translate that either way. But, but if you look at the context of what Paul is saying, I think it's really important that we note why it's translated make worthy here. Because if it's consider worthy, that seems to say that he sees what you're doing and he's pleased by the things that you're doing. And that you've done these things and now God is going to respond to the way you've been living. But if you use the word make worthy, it seems to emphasize the initiative of God, the responsibility of God in seeing our life, us live lives that are worthy. It makes the most sense to say that Paul is praying that God would, would make them worthy of God's calling. That phrase, God's calling, is the same place, is the same word where we would translate um, election or choice. Like, like God, has, God has called you, God has picked you to make you the church. And now God is the one who sees fit to make you worthy, to, to give you the faith, to give you the understanding, to give you the initiative to do these things. God has taken the initiative to make you something that you would not be apart from him. Paul is praying that since God's initiative, since it's, since it's God's initiative and responsibility to bring us into the church, that he, he would again take that same initiative to make us the kind of people that he wants us to be. Because he's saying... You can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit working through you to make you something different. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I am praying that God would do this. And we've read other places that, that God says, it's my will that you would live this way. So what is Paul praying? He's praying for the will of God. And anytime we pray for the will of God, God is faithful to answer that. Like, like it is always safe to pray for the will of God and know that it's going to happen because it's his will. And so Paul is praying that they would live the kind of life that God desires that they would live. So Paul is very confident that this is going to happen. He's already seen this taking place. He prayed for it in 1 Thessalonians, and he's already seen fruit from that prayer. But he's saying, we're going to continue to pray that you would continue to grow, that your faith would continue to increase, that your love for one another would continue to increase. Probably means that the church ought to spend more time praying, which is really handy. Because we're having prayer night tonight. 5.30. Be here. Don't miss it. We're just going to sit down for however long we want to. And we're going to pray. We're going to write down prayer requests for different people. We still have prayer requests from the past that we've used. Uh, we're going to probably, when we start response time here, I'm going to go back there and grab some note cards. I'm going to go put them over by the basket over here. So if you have a prayer request that you want us to pray for... Uh, even if you can't be here, you want us to pray for something. I mean, we want you to be here, be here, but, but go write that down. 
And tonight, our whole church will likely pray for that prayer request individually for an extended period of time. Because what we see here from Paul is that he, he trusts that God is faithful to answer prayer. Especially the kinds of prayers that are things that we know are his will already. So maybe it's that you would... Maybe it's that we should pray more that God would inspire us to take the gospel out more aggressively and be more effective with our presentation of the gospel. He wants us to do that. He's going to be faithful to answer that prayer. Maybe it's that we're going through something difficult and we want to pray that God would increase our faith as we fight through difficult times. He will do that. He said that he desires to do that. Maybe he won't give us a pool if we ask for God to give us a pool. But there are a whole lot of things that we could pray about that God is going to be faithful to answer. And I think that's kind of the big take home from what I'm getting in chapter 1 here. Is that amidst all of this suffering, Paul wants the church to know that God's in control. God knows who's right and who's wrong. God knows who's his people and who are not his people. So just pray that God would continue to make you look more like his people. Pray that God would make his church look more like his church. Pray that, pray that we wouldn't shy back in the face of adversity, but, but just like all of our church fathers before us, uh, in the face of real persecution, that we would, we would press forward and that we would take the gospel even more aggressively to the rest of the world. That we wouldn't shrink back and get safe inside of our building, but that God would just inspire us to go, to move, to do something, to not just sit still in one place. So let's pray for that.